Welcome to Church Unscripted. This week, we are excited that you're here with us. Um, we're on all podcasting platforms, so if you can leave us a review, um, notification, uh, hit the notification bell if you're watching this on YouTube below, or even like, or add a comment. Um, we're so glad you're here with us this week, and we've just started a series. We're in week two of this series um, called In the Ring, and I- I'm ready to bring out some boxing gloves. Maybe we'll have a little like fight up here, right? We have some. We can go get them. Okay. Uh-oh. Yeah. No, let's not do that. A different I- kind of conversation today. Oh, <laughs> no, no. But we're talking about fighting for your marriage, and so, Eric, can you kind of give us a little bit of a summary of Sunday, um, what you talked about what direction you ended up. I heard there was chili on stage. So that's, I, I, I was actually feeling the aromas of the chili and I, I really got it hungry. Really, it did smell good. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it probably smelled better than it tasted because I couldn't figure out how to use that crock pot. No, it wasn't even a crock pot. What was that thing? Instant pot. It's an instant pot, pot pressure yeah. cooker. And I think I had it on the wrong settings, I think. But I just it, saw it, it flash burn better. at one point. I don't yeah, know what that meant. <laughs> that wasn't very good. So all of the cooks in the room were like, dude, you don't know how to use this, do you? So, But it accomplished its purpose. The, so, so it was week two of In the Ring, and I preached on only one verse. It was Hebrews 13, 4, but there are three powerful parts to the verse. Mm-hmm. The first part says, uh, marriage should be honored by all. The second part says, and the marriage bed kept pure or undefiled. Mm-hmm. And the third part says, for God will judge all the adulterers and mm-hmm. sexually immoral. And that verse alone is a tough verse to hear because the vast majority of us, well, everybody who's been married, and including everyone who is going into marriage, will bring some kind of pain and shame associated with uh, sexual intimacy. Mm -hmm. And so you cannot be married for long and not experience that pain and shame. The problem is uh, we can allow that pain and shame to uh, cause us to fight against each other in marriage and therefore see that destroy the marriage. Or we can find a way to push through that pain and shame and get to the reconciliation, redemption, and mm-hmm. you know, restoration that can come on the other side. And so um, that, that was a hard verse because it's a verse that can be very, very easily taken out of context um, and misinterpret the heart and mind of God where we believe that if I have messed up sexually, um, um, then, then God's mad at me and he wants to judge me, which we see as condemnation, as punishment. Um, but but that's not the heart and mind of God. I think God, God wants to fight against anything that is destructive and hurtful to his kids because he loves us so much. And so he gives us these guardrails. This is what I talked about in the message. He gives us these guardrails when it comes to intimacy. And, and, and he says, if you, if you keep intimacy within these guardrails, then you'll experience the blessing that comes with the way that I designed them. Mm. But because sin entered the scene and distorted them, um, we need those guardrails because outside of those guardrails are the pain and the shame associated with intimacy. And that's where sin has distorted these things. The problem is we've all been bitten by that snake. We've all experienced the pain of that poison and coursing through our veins. And that always affects our marriages. Um, and it will affect your future marriage. Um, and so I think that's why we needed to understand the heart and mind of God when it comes to marital intimacy. So, um, so basically, hopefully basically was, you gave us the sex talk, is what, that, that what you're saying? Oh man, yeah, it, without using that word as much as possible. Oh yes, so, intimacy, yeah, intimacy. Right. Let's use the word intimacy. It's a much better We're word. editing this for YouTube, it's intimacy, right? right? Avoid those key words, right, that, that YouTube doesn't <laughs> like. So, so uh, Eric, I, I really appreciated um, all the things you said Sunday because to break down that one verse and see it there and how important it is, I even was looking at that whole section of Hebrews chapter 13 and the writer is emphasizing 
that God is never going to leave us and forsake us. That's even his promise after that. So when you say like people that feel that shame from some something in their past, um, that shame that you bring into marriage, it's like God is telling you, I'm going to never leave and forsake you. And that's his promise to us, um, even if we struggled with that or are struggling with that. So um, I think that's that's really amazing. And that's what I, I appreciated about, about Sunday. Um, I have I have one introductory question because I think you can't answer the question about this, especially in marriages, until you start with the whole home. Because a lot of people that are married um, have uh, kids. They may have parents. How does that all interact? Like leave and cleave. You know, when scripture tells us to leave and cleave to our spouse, that's intimacy. That's that closeness. We're going to our spouse first before our parents, you know, things like that. So how, how do you navigate having a Jesus-centered home? when it seems like you're in an increasingly secular society and it's completely detached from spiritual values, Christian values, the values that are presented in that verse. So how do, how do you continue having a Jesus-centered home, I guess, when the world around you is saying that that doesn't matter? Like, like let me give you an example. Um, it, in our world, people don't look at an emotional affair the way God looks at an emotional affair at the same level of say, say some type of physical affair. Um, maybe you can unpack that a little bit. How do you, how do you maintain Jesus-centered homes um, despite a secular society? Well, it all has to start with the right perspective, right? Because everything that we do in life, our actions, our voting patterns, our relationships are really uh, filtered through our worldview. And so that's why the first part of that verse is very important because mm-hmm. it starts with a perspective. And so if you begin to view marriage from a cultural perspective, then you're going to see what is permissible and not permissible in marriage completely different. And so if you want to honor honor God or honor marriage the way God sees it, then you have to start with a scriptural understanding of it. And so when we see Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talk about, you know, if you've even lusted after a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart, then that includes uh, emotional affairs. And so mm-hmm. if I wanna honor marriage the way God wants to, me to honor it and honor my wife that way, I have to say, it's not always what I do physically, it's what I do in my mind and in my heart. And so if, if I have a pattern of lust or fantasizing, Mm -hmm. then in the eyes of God, that's just as dangerous for the marriage. So I need to get that under control. I need to have self-control with those kinds of things. So so when it comes to a Jesus-centered home, um, it, it has to start with the right perspective. And so that's why the whole theme of this series is when you're in the ring, are you fighting against each other or are you fighting together against all the other influences, including the voice of culture, mm-hmm. including the voice of even Satan that would give you a different worldview, a different perspective on what marriage is and what it should be. Mm-hmm. And then if, if, if you get that right, then now you have the foundation mm-hmm. for the right kind of practices in marriage. So, so I, I think of like watching a video, uh, like a, maybe a meme or something. And there's, there's the wrestling ring and it's like WWE or something. And there's a tag team, right? You're the tag team. You guys are fighting for marriage and then everyone keep coming in the ring. Oh, it's culture. Oh no, it's culture again. Oh no, it's this, it's this. That's kind of what it feels like based on what you're saying. You're always, there's always a battle to fight for your marriage. And so you mentioned something on Sunday that I, I, I hope you can unpack a little bit more because I, I, I felt like you probably could have preached a whole sermon on it, okay? Because you talked about this concept of appetites. And so how does the concept of appetites align with your personal experiences? Like the pursuing temporary desires over long-term commitments in marriage. How, how, how does that align with what you've observed? You can talk about personal or something we've observed in others. 
I'm like, I, a, I feel like, like I feel like the appetite thing. That's just human. Like, I mean, go back to the garden. We gave up communion with God for an, a, a piece of fruit. Like, we wanted that now. Uh, we see it all over. Like, I mean, we're in January, so how many people have given up their New Year's resolutions? They had a big appetite. They were like, you know what? I'm gonna go to the gym every day. I'm gonna work out. I'm gonna heat. I'm gonna eat healthy. I'm not gonna do this. I am gonna do this. And then, oh, that Snickers bar though, that looks pretty good. And then the appetite grabs your grabs your attention. So I think it. I mean, I see it play out in every aspect of our human lives. I think that's just part of being human. So I think the key with the appetite and kind of what you talked about is the, the self-control that's behind that. And that when you were talking about appetite, that's kind of what I was thinking about is like, what am I disciplining my, my mind and my heart and my spirit to do um, so that the appetite doesn't distract me? Maybe a temporary appetite doesn't distract me from what I see in the long term. And it reminded me of... First um, Corinthians nine, and you just mentioned self-control too, but um, it says every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable uh, wreath, but we an imperishable. Uh, let's see here. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Um, but that idea of like discipline of self-control, I think that's where the appetite is is controlled is when we practice, when we train as an athlete, our minds and our hearts to be like, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to take part in that. I'm not going to step into that. I think that's huge when dealing with the whole appetite. So throughout Christian history, when it, when it comes to managing our appetites, there's been several extremes and you're, Mm -hmm. you're a student of, of church history. So this won't be unfamiliar to you, but on the one extreme, I would say both extremes are somewhat heretical and very unbiblical and to some degree ungodly. But on the one extreme, there's a belief system that says, you know what? The body doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Um, And so do whatever you want to, because we have this thing called grace, then you can satisfy every appetite you want to, because whenever you feel bad about it, you can ask for forgiveness and the grace of God will just come and pour over you. And it's fine. So but Paul everything... says, do not continue sinning Absolutely. lest grace may abound. Absolutely. And this is why Paul in so many of his letters is writing against these heretical teachings that relate very much to the body and our appetites. Mm-hmm. And that has become um, some like a, almost a cult of Christianity because it means that you can do whatever you want to with your body and then there's enough grace. Mm -hmm. Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls that cheap grace and that's not biblical at all. But on Mm -hmm. the other side of the scale is an absolute hatred of the body to say the only way I can be spiritual is not by depending wholly Mm -hmm. on the God's grace. It's by saying, I have to deny the physical altogether. And so Mm -hmm. you see some of these these themes, these trends of the desert fathers, the desert desert mothers. Um, In fact, in, in... in New Testament times, there are the Essenes um, that lived in caves. And so it was to deny every appetite you have. And so, yeah, I know you need to eat, but you will not enjoy the food you eat. You will eat stale bread and water, nothing else. And you will not enjoy any kind of food or fashion. And so you will have simply a robe that has nothing fashionable about it. Um, you don't cut your hair, you don't wear jewelry. And so it's a denial of, I mean, you know what I'm talking about. You're, yeah. you're familiar with this. And both of them are extremes that I think scripture warns us against. In the middle, there's a, it's- how, but, but both those extremes, before you go to the yeah. middle, both those extremes are things that we see present in every day. I mean, you just talked, you talked about some older stuff, but if you look at one side of that, that's basically Amish. 
right? And then the other side of that is basically, you know, people that are like, well, yeah, I don't need to go to church. I'm a Christian, mm -hmm. but then they do whatever they want. And, oh, and, and the reality is yeah. like, we have both those groups of people in our society. Right. And I would, I would even say, I know, I can think of names of people that live those two things. Oh yeah. I mean, so, so, so I mean, on the one hand, it's, it's an over emphasis of one verse that says, deny yourself, pick up a cross daily and follow me. And we interpret that as saying, I have to deny every passion, every appetite that I have, if I want to be a follower of Jesus. An even more extreme version of that is a heresy that says the body doesn't matter at all. And therefore Jesus Christ, his, his physical death and physical resurrection is, is, is not valuable. Mm. And so the best thing that we can do is to escape the physical as much as possible. And I think the center of that, where it's more biblical, mm -hmm. is to say, all right, I recognize that God created the body and he's given us certain appetites that to a certain degree should be enjoyed and expressed while not allowing sin to take us to a place where it's distorted. Mm. So I don't know, how, how, do we, how do we find that center? Well, when you, were when you were talking about that, it's almost like a war on worship. Like it's, what am I gonna idolize? That's kind of what you're talking about. It's like on one end, it's like, well, I'm gonna idolize being the perfect Christian and do all the right things, not have the appetites and things, deny everything so that only Jesus is my focus. But you're actually, mm -hmm. you you begin to worship the method of which you get to Jesus. On the other end, it's like, well, it's my, my body. I can do whatever I want. Now you're worshiping your body. And what Jesus calls us to is to say, hey, keep your eyes on me. I'm right here in the middle. Um, yes, I want you to enjoy me. I want you to enjoy my creation. I want you to uh, enjoy these appetites that I've given you. Like he's given us a desire for food. He's given us a desire for all these things um, because he wants just as any father would. He wants us to enjoy our life. Um, but it's, I think it, for us, it's important to be like, okay, what am I worshiping in this whole mm -hmm. conversation? Because am I worshiping the appetite or am I worshiping the one who gave it to me and gives me the best framework, <coughs> excuse me, gives me the best framework for how to operate in that? Well, and I, I think we have one thing working against us when it comes to uh, culture uh, the younger you are, the more likely you are to be, uh, I, I brought this up last week, social media, there's things that you scroll through and you see people like mindlessly scrolling. I could walk through the church on a Sunday morning and probably see people sitting at the cafe or someone doing that. And so it's hard, it's hard when you can get instant gratification from a screen in front of you to actually say no to an appetite in another area. There's studies done on this. I mean, it's, it's literally the self-control that's required to say no. And part of it is, you know, the generation I grew up with, now I'm going to sound old. You know, I said I was going to sound old today. It's like you had to turn on a TV. You had to watch the TV show at the time it was on, you know, say 7 p.m., 8 p.m., whatever, 6 p.m., whatever it was. And that's the only way you saw it. Yeah. And now you have any number of streaming services. You can watch whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want. And unless you put guardrails, which we'll definitely discuss, I got questions about that, then you're just... It's, it's free game. Everything's free game. And so I think what is required at this point is a lot more intentionality. The addictions of old are the same addictions that we have now. They're just more readily available. And maybe that's the way I would put it is, is the only thing suppressing that is still that Judeo-Christian ethic in our society. Because both ends of that, I could see people saying, I'm a Christian and I'm going to deny my body. Like the, the world's going to burn. So I don't need to care about the earth. I'm like, yeah, but God says that we're supposed to cultivate and we're supposed to take care of the earth. And it's not just about, you know, you. And so um, let, let's pivot a little bit 
in this story? Because you you talked about Jacob and Esau, and I want to I want to discuss that as well. But um, in what ways um, have you seen yourself or maybe someone else struggling with with the pain and shame in marriage? Because you brought that up on Sunday, and I think that was really important. And the steps you can take to freedom from healing and the emotions that you may feel in that pain and shame. You guys got ideas oh, about that? I mean, the, the person, the only person in the marriage that needs, <clears throat> I'm sorry, the person in the marriage that needs to find freedom is not only the person who's committed the offense. And so mm. the person who is offended also needs healing because if they're not careful, they will hold that sin, that pain, that brokenness over the person's head for years to come. Mm-hmm. And they could be that, that barrier to, for continued health. And so that's why the person who committed the offense that caused the pain mm-hmm. needs to, first of all, be apologetic and repentant so they can find forgiveness. And then the mm-hmm. one who is giving the forgiveness needs to actually forgive, not forget, but to not allow that, that pain to continue bringing shame into the marriage. Mm-hmm. And there's several examples of both experiences where a marriage was restored and they were able to get the health on the other side of it because one was for, forgiven and the other didn't, didn't hold it over the other head. But there's also marriages who are just holding on by a thread right now because the one person was not able to get past mm-hmm. the sin or the brokenness. And so it's, it's, I think it begins with... Um, with not only asking for forgiveness, but giving forgiveness mm. and then moving on from it. I, I've heard said once, the only time, the only person you're holding hostage when you don't forgive is yourself. That's and I think, true. I think yeah. that's very true in marriage. I think um, one of the things that I, I've witnessed, whether it be in my own life or others, I see um, there's a predisposition to be impatient about certain things. And I think it's less, sometimes it's less about forgiveness because you'll get there eventually, mm. but the time it takes to get, to that forgiveness when there's shame involved in the relationship, I think is tends to be the struggle of most relationships. Um, if you go years without actually having a moment of forgiveness, maybe you're like, we never argue and this never happens. And all of a sudden you have one argument and next thing you know, people are mentioning the D word, okay? Mm-hmm. I'm like, no, like why did that happen that way? It's because you've never been challenged to forgive. You don't have much patience with forgiveness and you just kind of went with the flow when in reality, God's trying to to grow your heart and disciple you and saying, okay, you need to forgive. Um, David, do you have more to add to that? Or I, I, no, like- I, I think that's good. I, you know, it's, I heard somebody say once forgiveness happens right away and reconciliation takes time. And that's a really painful thought. Like when I think about people that have hurt me, mm-hmm. uh, I wish I could say that's been my attitude every time, but sometimes that forgiveness does take time to come to. Mm-hmm. But I would encourage people, like the heart of Jesus is to say, like, I love you as a son or a daughter of Jesus Christ. I forgive you. But that doesn't mean that everything's back to normal. I think sometimes we can use that in these cases as an excuse, like, well, you said you forgave me. And like, you know, I just mm-hmm. think of different people that I know that's like, well, she forgave me. So like, she'll do, she'll do it again. Like she'll forgive me again, and it's which like, is kind well, of flippant, right? I yeah, mean, it's, it's like, well, it's like, in, or she has to forgive me because, like, that's what the Bible says. Like, I've had somebody oh. say that to me, and, <laughs> and while that's true, like, I think we have to be cautious not to act in a way that you know, go on sinning that grace may abound. No, don't do that. Um, but there is an element of understanding the heart of Christ is forgiveness. Well, so, so when you talk about pain and shame in marriage, there's something that I think is often unaddressed before you get married. Like 
I didn't know this before I got married. Most people I know didn't know this. The person that's going to actually hurt you the most in this life tends to be your spouse. And it's only because you're close to them. It's not because they're the most painful, hurtful person. You love them. You care about them. But because you love them, there's times where it's like, oh, why did you do that? You take something so much harder from your spouse than you do from anyone else. Um, so what would you say to someone that's struggling with that now and is saying, oh, I've been hurt so bad. But the reality is that same, that person, the reason they're hurt is because they both love each other. Do you see what I'm getting at? Like the, the, the root of everything is actually that they love each other so much. But if someone off the street said the same thing or did the same thing, they'd just like kind of blow it off, you know, but you take it harder. So what would you say to someone like that to see how they could heal through that? You know, we talk. Uh, yeah, I, I would say it. You have to believe that the marriage to your spouse is worth the difficulty of working through that pain. Because if it's a stranger and they hurt me, it might actually be the healthiest thing for me to say, I'm going to avoid that person. Mm-hmm. So I'm not in an environment where they can hurt me anymore. Because yeah. the reality is, I'm not responsible for them and they're not responsible for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Jesus did not feel as responsible to the Pharisees and the Sadducees as he did to his group of disciples that he was closest to. Now, Jesus was never married, but that doesn't mean that he, he didn't work through conflict with his closest friends. And then when there's conflict with the Pharisees and so forth, um, he would address it. And then he wouldn't say, I feel like I'm obligated to be their best friend. He didn't do that. And so, but because you are married to your spouse, it is worth all the difficult conversations and however long it takes mm-hmm. to get to that healthy marriage. Because once you get there, there is an intimacy you can't describe. There's an intimacy you can't get anywhere else with anybody else. Um, and you look back and say, I'm so glad we worked through that conflict mm-hmm. because, because now the health of the marriage is, is so much stronger mm-hmm. than just avoiding it altogether. So, so, you just said avoidance, and this was not a question I planned on asking, but I want to unpack a little bit here because I, I, I've known a lot of statistics about marriage, and more recently, uh, this includes people that are divorced more than once, but it's 62% of the United States is divorced. If they got married, then they're divorced. It's 62% of people that are married. Then you have this other statistic that is in alignment with that. 63% of the population, their number one conflict style is avoidance. And so how can we, and we, I'm speaking very specifically about us, but also like someone watching this, how can we not avoid conflict? Because you just said we need to fight for it. We need to not avoid, but, but I mean, practically speaking, like what's the, like if one person is running towards you and trying to deal with the conflict and you're feeling like your spouse is running away from you, how do you get them to run towards you? You know, like, I mean, I'm, I'm serious. I, that just seems hard. Like, how do you get someone out of that avoidance cycle? I think if, if in your marriage relationship, if it's an avoidance cycle, then what you're telling your spouse is that you don't need them to fight your marriage battle with you. And in a sense, mm-hmm. you say, go sit in the corner, I'll fight culture by myself. Mm-hmm. But the moment you start to see that your spouse is a partner in the fight, then you invite them into the conflict. Mm-hmm. Because now if you come to the perspective or come to the conflict with, mm-hmm. I'm not fighting against each other, we're fighting together against the thing that's trying to destroy mm-hmm. our marriage. Yeah. Then now all of a sudden you invite them into the conflict, you're not avoiding it. Yeah. And now you've doubled the power and the strength of your fight. Mm-hmm. And so the more the more I can invite my wife, Heather, into conflict, even if it's the pain between us, then, then now there's a far greater chance of success. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, what does the Bible say? A, a cord of three strands is, I mean, it, what does it not say? Not easily broken. Not easily broken, yeah. And when it's me, my wife, and Jesus fighting together against 
mm-hmm. against the things trying to destroy a marriage, we have a far greater chance of success. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. I think my, my personality is uh, at its core probably one of those avoidance personalities I don't like. I like keeping the peace. And so if that means avoiding a conversation, then that, then everything feels peaceful. And I've had to grow in that. And one of the things that um, Katie and I have worked hard at is like sometimes there'll be a, a disagreement or an argument that I may think is no big deal. And so I'm just like, yeah, it's fine. We're not going to deal with it, brush it under the rug. But then like three months from now, you know, we're talking about something and then that thing gets brought up and then it just becomes like kind of the thorn in the side of the relationship. And so one of the things that we are working at, we're, we're not perfect, but it's, it's addressing the disagreement or the, whatever the conflict is in the moment, whether it's large or small, whether it's like, Hey, you, you know, the trash is stacking up and it stresses everybody out, whatever it is. Don't just brush that off, but actually address it and say, hey, when you did that, it made me feel this way. I know it's not a big thing, but if we can learn to have those like small moments of like trust building of saying like, hey, I know your intention was this, but this is how it came across to me. I'm not upset at you, but I know that eventually you're going to do something wrong and this is going to fuel that that anger. Well, and or so you're keeping short accounts. So keeping the short accounts, I think is really helpful in the avoidance mindset is just like you just have to discipline yourself like for me it's like if there is something that does bother me i have to say it and if i don't say it i have to be okay with not bringing it up again i mean well and and something something i've learned this applies to marriage and a lot of things but it's if i feel i shouldn't have to do something yeah. I probably actually should do it. <laughs> Does that make right. sense? Like, yeah. like if I if I think I'm like, oh, I shouldn't do this, well, I, mean, I probably should do it because when it's the Holy Spirit, I'm not saying a bad thing, but I just like, hey, I should do this. In general relationships, as far as it depends on you, yeah. live peaceably with one another. So I can't sit around saying, well, if only she would come talk to me about that. No, I. it's my responsibility in scripture, in any relationship to say, it depends on me because I want to live at peace and in harmony with you. I'm Let me take that verse from you and and ask a question. Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, so Hebrews 13, four says, Mm -hmm. keep the marriage bed pure, keep Mm -hmm. it undefiled. Imagine you're in a scenario where your spouse has had an affair. Mm. Um, Let's just go there. And then you just read the verse that says, (laughs) as much as it depends on you, live at peace with each other. Mm if that would happen to you, you could not avoid being angry and hurt correct, and ashamed mm-hmm. and embarrassed mm-hmm. and somewhat vindictive. Mm-hmm. How do you manage those emotions mm. and live at peace with your spouse? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I don't have a, I can't give you a solid answer. So I, I was gonna I was gonna sidestep oh, the answer a little bit. Is one of one of the things that tends to happen in those scenarios is you go I need someone to talk to, and then you talk to all the wrong people. You really struggle. Maybe you're saying things, inventing things, and later on it's like okay I said that, and that's what I felt in the moment. But now this is where God's brought me. Like I've healed in this way. I think a lot of times we don't realize how much we need some something like a a, a wise confidant that's a mature believer in our lives because 
many times, you know, the things I see that are struggles in marriage are things that could be resolved from talking to someone that's further along the road than we are. Um, and, and seeing that, and that would actually save a lot of marriages that are maybe, maybe hurting and struggling because if we don't talk to the right people at the right time with some wisdom, biblical wisdom, um, then we don't recover from it. We do feel all those things, but we don't have that time to, to heal from it. Um, I know so many people that have had some type of issue with that, whether it be marital infidelity of the, the bed, let's say, or the emotions, which almost can be worse in some cases. Um, and the thing that they struggle with immediately afterwards is they wanted to talk to everybody about it because they were shaming their spouse again. And usually... Um, in most cases, it was the spouse that said, I did this. It wasn't that they were hiding it anymore. It was that they said they did it. Mm-hmm. And so I think some of it is coming to the, the reality of, yes, I've been hurt. Mm-hmm. I know what, that hurting people hurt people. And that's, mm-hmm. I mean, that's cliche, but it's yeah. the reality. And so how do I become to a point where I'm healed? Because healing people heal people too. So it's the, it's the other part of that. So you can help in the healing that, in that process. And I think... Being, being that trusted confidant sometimes is um, not talking about things you don't need to talk about. Some of that stuff's supposed to be kept between spouse to spouse and it shouldn't be shared with anyone. But uh, in some cases, you know, I know people that have had that happen and next thing they know, they think everyone knows it, even though they don't, that everyone knows that my spouse cheated on me or did this. And I don't think everyone knew but they assumed everyone knew and that shut them down. So the best thing you probably can do is actually be open to, okay, who would I go to in that situation? Whether it's a family member, whether it's a pastor, whether it's a counselor, I would highly suggest a counselor in that situation. Um, A godly counselor, (laughs) not just anybody because uh, a lot of people have different views on that, but um, to, to understand that because one of the things about sin is it's deceptive and Satan deceives us into thinking that we should do something and we actually make it worst. Just because someone sins against us doesn't mean we should sin against them. And you see that throughout history. I mean, I, I've heard of pastors, their wife has an affair and they go have an affair. Can you believe that? I mean, it's, it's horrifying. And they did it. They, they said at some point when, again, they were in a church sharing their testimony about where they're at now, but they were saying, oh, I did it because I was mad at her. That's foolish. Right, and so we can't get stuck in that that well of foolishness that comes with hurt. Well, and that, one of the things that you mentioned was that, like, some, feeling angry, like ashamed, like all those things. It's okay to feel anger. Um, it's not okay to necessarily act in anger. But one of the things that I'm thinking about is with that verse. It kind of goes back to what I was saying. Is I don't think that happens instantaneously. Like I don't think we can be hurt and instantly say i'm gonna live at peace with you yeah you're i don't think yourself. that's i don't think that's human nature that's called drugs think, that's called I, drugs well, that's the I, only thing what, that does that what, what, what if you do that what you're actually doing is you're just stuffing down emotion yeah and that's not healthy either that'll come out later right and so that's i think so you're either a volcano what, you're what stuffing I'm saying it down is until you explode. like in that moment like feel anger express it in a healthy way uh find that person but also, like, don't neglect prayer. <laughs> don't neglect the power of the Holy Spirit. And, mm-hmm. and allow the Holy Spirit to take some of those emotions from you so that someday down the road, you may have the opportunity to live at peace with the person who hurt you. It's not a magic pill. 
and it's not just going to make everything better. You're going to feel pain. You're going to feel sorrow. You're going to feel rejection. You're going to feel all those things. Um, so, so I, I'm speaking as a person that I've known friends or family members that have, that have had struggled through this, but I have noticed the couples that come out on the other side actually stronger tend to be the couples that decide, both of them decide to turn inward towards each other and get a third party, a counselor, someone involved that is going to talk with them. That's, can you say impartial? I mean, it's impartial. I mean, but, but I, uh, but I'm saying they, they tend to focus on that and they also tend to commit to things. So the person that's committed the offense, if they're unwilling to, Mm-hmm. be reasonable about, hey, I know I did this to you. I know you're hurting. Mm-hmm. I'm willing to do X, Y, and Z to get our marriage back on track. If they're unwilling to do that, then really there's not much more you can do. You can still forgive them, but so, you can't do so much else. the heart else. of repentance is key there. Yeah, I mean, if there's not a heart of repentance, you can't turn it around. And I know you're talking about the person that was offended, right. but the reality is it's, it, it, it's still, like when you said inviting someone in to fight for the marriage, you can't, you know, if you're inviting, it's got to go both ways, even in infidelity. So, yeah, so one of the things that I like about our conversation is that so far we have, we have not, in a sense, given permission, even though there's some biblical precedent for it, that once a marital affair happens, the first choice you should make is divorce. Um, there ought to be perhaps some season of separation and so forth, um, definitely counseling. But I love the fact that we are discussing this in a way that says, even after this betrayal or this failure has happened, there are steps to creating a healthy marriage again. So even though I believe the Bible gives somewhat permission for divorce after an affair, after an abuse, after an abandonment, that doesn't mean that it has to happen. Mm -hmm. And so I appreciate this. And I think there's some very critical steps each person's gonna have to take Mm -hmm. in order to get to that healthy marriage instead of it being broken. And again, I wanna emphasize both people. We have people in our church who've experienced this pain. One person is saying, I want to fight for the marriage. I want it to work again. And the other person's just giving up. Yeah. It has to be both people. And if you're the one that caused the offense, there's some things that you're gonna have to decide on. The first thing is this, you have to seek after uh, forgiveness and apology. And it can't be this fake stuff that says, you know, you've got to forgive me. Right. Then you're not legitimately repentant. Yeah. You have to show that genuine repentance. And then and you're, you're, you're gonna take the to time both. to build trust, You have right? to, yeah. And then you have to reach out one arm to your spouse and then one arm to Jesus. The arm you're reaching out to your spouse says, I will agree with my spouse on genuine, legitimate, empirical things I can do to rebuild trust. Here's the evidence, the evidences of the trust I'm rebuilding. And so she has access to everything on my phone. She can look at every conversation I have. She knows where I'm at at all times. Um, So what are those things you're doing to rebuild trust? And then the arm you're reaching out to Jesus is I'm gonna commit to praying every single day to keep me pure, keep me safe, those kind of things. But then the person who has been hurt, the spouse that's been hurt, they also have to have two outreaches, one to their spouse, the other to Jesus. Mm -hmm. To their spouse, they have to say, I'm going to commit to now that I've forgiven you, how can I uh, not express my continued anger at you? How can I continue to show an expression of grace and trust to you? Even if I don't feel like you uh, in, um, deserve it right now. And then the, the, the reaching out to Jesus has to be all of this anger, all of this betrayal, all of my frustration. I can't take it out against my spouse and I'm not gonna give it to somebody else who's not a trusted source of counsel. What I am gonna do is I'm gonna give all of this to Jesus. In fact, he invites us to do this. He says, um, lay your cares at the feet of Jesus, uh, lay your anxiety at him because he cares for you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think if you and I do that, 
then we're committing to the right kind of practices that are going to lead to that healthy marriage again. Here, here's my question for you guys, if I, can, if I could ask this. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of people listening to this right now that are not married. Mm-hmm. And their situation is either single, pre-marriage, maybe they're a teenager, mm-hmm. maybe a college student. We also have those who've been divorced. Mm-hmm. We also have those who are widows. Maybe they're even separated. So how do we encourage a, a, either a preparation for an outer marriage if you're not yet married, how do we pre- encourage a, a pure marriage bed, even if you're not in a marriage bed right now, so that if the day comes where you do get married or you do get reconciled, then you come back into the marriage or come into the marriage with the right kind of perspective and the right kind of practices. So, so how do we address those people yeah. and apply this verse to them? So, so I, had, I had a question that was along this lines mm-hmm. talking about guardrails because yeah. you mentioned guardrails. And I think, I think one of the things that, I've come to realize is our culture has diminished the the purity of our sexuality, intimacy, you would say, with your spouse. Um, it's diminished the role of that. Um, I think the church didn't help with that because we created a shame culture with purity culture in the 90s and youth groups and stuff. And, and some of that stuff was really good with great intent, but it also created a shame culture that people went out into the world and they just kind of went nuts when it came to that and came to protecting themselves and guardrails. Um, so I think, I think it's the same that I would say about alcohol. It's gotta be moderation, but then we also have certain liberties. And we know that if we fall into, te- like if we're tempted by something, we need to avoid it. That's where the guardrail is. So, you know, I had, I had a man come to me once and he's like, I've talked to my wife and the only thing I watch is Disney movies. And I was like, oh, okay. That's a little odd, but that's the choice they made after they got married. Well, for that single person, what does it mean to not ignite the fire of passion? Maybe is the way I would put it. Um, what does it mean to stay away from that? Or, or maybe even, uh, I mean, men and women are so different. So like when I say that, that means different things for both genders, you know? And so um, what does it mean to put guardrails up that are protective of the, my future spouse? That seems trite, I hate to say this. When I was single, I was like, future spouse? This is a joke. They're like, don't kiss any girls because you're future spouse. And I'm like, this is weird. I don't know who my future spouse is. You know, like, I don't know what that means. But the reality is now that I'm married, I get it. So if I'm looking on the other end and I'm talking to someone that's preparing for marriage, I'm telling you right now, everything that anyone's ever said that's a Christian that says, for your future marriage, protect the, the wedding bed and don't do this, don't do that prepare yourself for that marriage that you're going to be intimate and close for like your whole life. I'm telling you right now, do that, do whatever. <laughs> like, I mean, I, I, I look back and I think how foolish maybe I was as a single person thinking, what does this matter? And then I got married and I'm like, oh, this all matters. Oh, yeah. Everything matters. So that's a single person, but maybe there's that reconciliation. Maybe you're struggling and you're saying, I want to be in a relationship. I'm divorced. I, I've been abandoned or my, my husband or wife cheated on me or whatever it might be, whatever it is, I'm divorced. And you're struggling with, with loneliness, let's say. Mm-hmm. And you're hearing other people say things like, don't settle. And that hurts you because you're just thinking, I'm lonely. I'm not trying to settle. I'm trying to be in a relationship. I need people around me. I love being around other people. And I'm longing for that intimacy I once had or that closeness I once had, I think that's a lot harder to speak to mm. than it is the single person. The single person that's never been married is is a lot easier to speak in terms of do this, don't do that. Mm. 
and actually be this, don't be that is maybe a better way of saying it. It's a lot harder also to talk to the widow because in the widow's case, depending on age, depending on how old they are, maybe they're, I mean, you could be a widow and be 25, but you also, most widows I would think is more, you know, retirement age. And if you're retirement age, it's like, well, what do I do to connect with people and not get lost in some fantasy, let's say, or something like that. So I don't have answers for the second two as much. I'm hoping that you guys do. But look at David. David's shaking his head like, you're great, Eric. I love yeah, it. You're, you're well, it's, it's, hard. You're it's hard because like I've only ever been single. So that okay. like you, like that's, well, I mean, I'm married, but I'm saying like, <laughs> You've only ever been but single. I, no, but I'm saying like in those contexts, like I've, I've not had any kind of marital issue. I've not had, um, I've not, I can't be a widow. Um, but like, or I guess I could be a widower, but I'm not. So I can't speak to those things with a, here's what you should do. Um, but in my young, ignorant mind, I would say there's so much satisfaction in the presence of God that if you continue pursuing his presence, um, whenever that person or that time or that healing comes, you'll be ready for it. Far more ready than if you didn't, at least. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I would say I, I think the, the word patience, maybe. That's patience what, when you said that. Really, really important word. Yeah, you know, I go back to the letter that Solomon wrote his son, the book of Proverbs. And, and you mentioned earlier, you know, there's a difference between being pure and then doing pure kind of things. Mm-hmm. I think that you become a pure person when you, beget, when you become very, very um, strict on, on certain behaviors. And so if I'm single or divorced, the way that I envision keeping myself pure is by making sure I have very, very strict guardrails still up. Mm-hmm. And so even though I'm single, I still have to protect what I see online. Mm-hmm. If I'm single, if I'm divorced, mm-hmm. I still have to protect yep. who I'm with in a private kind of setting. Um, I mean, Solomon says, do not even go near the house of the harlot. Don't mm-hmm. even go near because you're not strong enough. Mm-hmm. And so I think the single person, the divorced person has to evaluate, all right, where is, what are the triggers that Satan's going to use to bring impurity into my life and then set up strict, stringent accountability in your life. And so don't do these things perhaps might be the most spiritual thing you can do in that setting. Do these certain things might be the most spiritual things you can do. And I think, I think our culture, it's really hard when you say don't do these things, people don't want to hear that. So, so I think, I think even, even in those settings, focusing on what you should be doing is a lot easier than focusing on what you shouldn't be doing because then you focus, your mind goes there quicker. So, and especially you mentioned accountability. I think it's really important. I'm going to add a, but people, it only works. Like if people are watching, it only works if you want it to. Absolutely. Yeah. Like you have to put effort in. You can't just say, oh, I want to be accountable. Well, that's great. But are you going to go back next week and meet with your your accountability partner or someone that you're meeting with and just say the same thing you did last week? You you can lie to them all day long if you want to. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So, so I think it's, it's really about your desires being pure, which goes back to the being that you started with. So, yeah. I mean, the way that I would keep myself pure if I was divorced or single or a widow is the same things I would do to keep myself pure while I'm married. And so I'm still not going to meet with um, the member of an opposite sex in a setting that is (coughs) unhealthy. Now, if I'm going to go on a date, that's a different story, right? But there's still accountability related to that. But I'm still not going to go to places that would have dangerous content. I'm still not going to have inappropriate conversations with people uh, without accountability. So um, 
there are certain purity standards mm-hmm. that are true regardless of your circumstance. And I think yeah. that's something that we have to commit to saying, these are things I'm gonna do. These are things I'm not going to do. Yeah. And just get, go crazy on them. Be disciplined. Be disciplined, absolutely. So, so can, we, can we pivot that just a little bit? <laughs> so speaking of guardrails, how do you work with your spouse on guardrails? Because I think that's another conversation. Mm-hmm. That's a separate conversation. If we're talking about married guardrails, um, because I mean, if we're talking about single people, mm-hmm. people that are divorced, widows, um, but if we're talking about in marriage, um, I, I, maybe I don't speak for all men, but sometimes that's a harder conversation because your spouse is like, well, this is where you should be and you're not there. And I saw you look at that woman or I saw you did this. Like, how do you have healthy, not shame-based conversations about what guardrails you're going to put in your relationship? And it can go both ways. I mean, to be honest, you know, I find that women tend to be, get in emotional affairs and what guardrails are you going to put there? Who, how am I going to communicate with someone? Um, in what setting? What, what communication my spouse is going to be on? What, all that kind of stuff. So what are some practical ways that you guys have for those kind of conversations? Because I'd be willing to bet most marriages have not had that conversation ever. That, and I think it's a healthy one. That's what I was going to say is to have the conversation. It feels awkward, right? Like it, it just does because you're saying, I don't want this to happen. Well, why don't you want it to happen? Well, it's like, well, I don't, or why are you thinking about that or whatever? And so like one of the things that Katie and I have done like from the beginning, and we saw this modeled in our parents. So we're like a rare form. Um, but we, we talked about boundaries. We talked about what we will and will not do. And I think that's just the most important part, like have the conversation with your spouse and be open and honest and, and, then there's a mutual accountability there. If you don't have the conversation, you're going to fail at it because there's nothing there. I think, I think you have to, I agree completely. You have to have the conversation, but, but the way I think I would decipher that conversation is discovering the difference between strategy and insecurity. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. a lot of times we put up guardrails as a result of our insecurities, which actually are not helpful. Mm-hmm. But when you get strategic, then all of a sudden they become strong for yeah. the marriage. So for example, uh, Heather and I have several friends, of course they're married. And so what that means is that there's times where I'm hanging out, of course with Heather, but there's other women involved. And Heather knows that, that there are other attractive women in the world. And so I'm going to be around them. Mm-hmm. Wait, a so the insecu- Wait a second. Wait a second. The insecurity would show up in forms of like, I don't want us to hang out with our friends because I don't want you to be around any other attractive women, right? That's insecurity. That's a guardrail, but it's out of insecurity. Mm-hmm. Strategy is, yeah, we're going to be friends with these people, but don't have a private conversation with them mm-hmm. that's, that's intimate in nature. It's don't go hang out with her without me and her, hus- her husband being there, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's tr- strategy versus insecurity. Mm-hmm. And I think the older that you get, the more trust there is in a relationship, the more clear strategy is compared to insecurity and the more you overcome those insecurities. So- well, well and, and insecurity can come on many levels. I mean, I, I've heard of people being in situations where they expect their spouse to, you know, check in every 15 minutes even. I mean, we're talking adults or, or saying, okay, why did you go to Starbucks? I saw that on your thing earlier today. And you're like, I went to pick up a coffee in the drive-thru. Like stuff like that. I've heard conversations like that. So I think, I think what you're getting at is actually more common than not. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, maybe the conversation hasn't happened in the, the, the real, like this is a guardrail sense. It's more like this insecurity has presented itself. Mm-hmm. So 
I need to deal with this. Or maybe even there is past struggles in their relationship or, or something like that. But I, I agree with you that it has to be strategic, not based on insecurity. Mm-hmm. Um, the only time insecurity is found to be true, it seems to be a self-fulfilling prophecy, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Because you're insecure and then you're like, well, you did this and it's not even the same thing, but you did something mm-hmm. and now I'm going to be insecure about it. So I think that's really, that's an honest like, probably the biggest struggle in that conversation is what's insecurity and what's actually us trying to follow Jesus in this. And there's, there's ways, especially as we as husbands can be sensitive and honoring of our spouses when insecurities come up. Like for example, when you're with other people and your wife says, do you think I'm prettier than her? Or do you think she's prettier than me? I mean, that's an insecurity, but it's a legitimate fear. And so instead of me saying, quit being so insecure, I need to honor my wife. <laughs> wait, wait, you're going to what? <laughs> don't do that. Say, um, of course, God made other people attractive. I mean, he created people and he would create people beautiful, right? But I'm showing self-control. I'm not gonna lust. I'm not gonna have a conversation privately with her. And I still think you are gorgeous, you know? Um, and so that, there's a way like that we the, can- the question, like, am I fat, right? Absolutely. You just can't yeah, win yeah, with yeah. that yeah. one, so. Just don't even answer that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> uh, I, I think we as husbands can help our spouses I'm sorry, our wives and our wives can help us as men overcome our insecurities by responding in the right way and then offering a strategic plan on how to make sure that, that those fears don't become a reality. Um, because if those fears become a reality, then good luck ever overcoming insecurities again. Well, um, in something you said, it's you making a plan together. I think that's important because, because there can be insecurity on both sides. Um, about a bunch of things and they may look different, different insecurities, but then you're actually making a plan together that you agree to. I think the agreement is what's important because then when you break the agreement, then it's like, okay, well, we agree to this. We can go back to this. This is, this is what we need to do. So I think that's really important. Um, You know, you, you went from talking about honoring marriage. We talked about undefiled. And then the third part that I jokingly said, I just, I'm so excited to say because the algorithm is talking about sexually immoral and adulterous. And there's something about that that happens um, in marriage when when something like that happens and we really struggle. But if you notice, um, I had prior to uh, Church Unscripted, I talked about the, the phrase in the verse following in, in Hebrews 13, five, it says, I will never leave and forsake you. Like God promises immediately after that, He's like, he's like, okay, you shouldn't be doing this. It's pretty much condemnation. Like it's wrath, it's judgment, it's discipline, but yet God's still saying, I'll never leave and forsake you. So we've danced around forgiveness a little bit, okay? But I'd love to ask this question. So what role does forgiveness play in the restoration of a marriage? And how can we cultivate a spirit of forgiveness with our relationships? So well, this- if you don't have forgiveness, then, then it's all lost. If, if you don't have, I mean, the, our very salvation is predicated on God's forgiveness of our sins. And if we don't believe that he's forgiven us, then we, we have no foundation to assume that anything else about our salvation or faith is, is valid. And so if, if there's been a, a pain or a brokenness, if you don't start with forgiveness, then all the effort on the other side or whatever other effort you do will really be a waste of time um, un, until forgiveness actually happens. So if, if you're not willing to forgive, then don't try fixing anything. But once forgiveness happens, then it's a continued decision mm-hmm. to continue showing that forgiveness. Because there's a lot of people that says, I forgive you, but then they act in a way that they have not forgiven. Mm-hmm. And so now we're getting mixed messages and we're confused. And we're like, well, have you really forgiven me? Because you bring it up all the time. 
And it sounds like you're still angry at me and you hate me. So what's your forgiveness actually mean? So it, it's the foundation, but it's a continued process that, that captures everything else about the healing process. Um, so if it's not a part of the culture of the home or the marriage, then, then you have an uphill battle um, in everything else. So, I mean, mm-hmm. basically we need to create a culture of forgiveness in our mm-hmm. families and to have a Jesus-centered home, forgiveness would be a core part of that. Can't right? have a Jesus-centered home without, without a culture of forgiveness. Yeah. So, so uh, whew, this is a hard question. I, 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 I've been waiting for this one and, and how- is this, ca- is this like the finale kind of question? This is, this is a finale question. <laughs> yeah. So um, how can we demonstrate a commitment to keeping the marriage bed pure and undefiled and what challenges do you anticipate when pursuing this goal? Because we've talked about how we can. Okay, we've already kind of answered that. But the second half is, what challenges do you anticipate when we pursue that goal? And I'm speaking, maybe we want to divide it between those different groups. That no, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a good enough, it's a strong question, man. I think they really go hand in hand. Uh, demonstration is critical part of that question. Because you can say, you know, I'm committed to the purity of this relationship. But if you can't demonstrate how you intend to show that, then I don't know how your spouse can really trust you as a result. And so I need to be able to show my wife that anytime she wants to pick up my phone, there's not going to be a surprise conversation with some other woman. There's not going to be a surprise, um, 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 you know, phone call um, log with somebody else. She needs to be able to look at my phone anytime and, and be like, okay, yeah, he, he is showing purity there. She needs to be able to call or show up in my office at any time and, and see that I'm not meeting privately with some other woman in an hour that is inappropriate to do that. So there's demonstrable things that you can do. And the reason you have to do this is because the second part of your question is very, very clear. We have things that are wanna disrupt that all the time. First of all, spiritually speaking, we have an enemy who wants to disrupt your marriage. And that's the best way that he can disrupt the kingdom. If he can ruin the marriage, he can ruin the family, he can ruin the community, ruin the kingdom. <clears throat> but then also the reality is as followers of Jesus, we are presenting his caring, loving nature to the world around us. And that includes other women. Mm. And so if a woman is in an environment of people who don't care for her, if she experiences somebody, especially pastors who do care for them, there's the potential of an attraction happening. Mm -hmm. And so we have to protect ourselves from a woman who is potentially starving for the care that as followers of Jesus and pastors, we are paid to give. And so we have to protect against that. And so if the moment you commit to purity is the moment you're going to get attacked in significant ways. David, have things to add or? Nope. He said it better than I could. No. <laughs> well, and, and, and I think, I think when we demonstrate that commitment, it's, it's kind of like faith without works is dead is what, you know, James says. On the other hand, you know, Paul's saying, well, faith is actually what saved you. You didn't earn your salvation. Um, I think there's a there's a balance that even within this idea of undefiled, because if you don't, through your actions, demonstrate what you speak with your mouth, then it basically doesn't matter what you say at all. And so as a Christian, um, what undergirds our faith um, is exactly here. I, I, I wanna go back to close, close in talking about Hebrews uh, chapter 13 and just say this, it, the passage that you preached from, that verse is in the middle of a bunch of verses, but it starts with this, let brotherly love continue. 
And really it's speaking at the core of what it means to be a Christian. So if anyone thinks I'm not married or I'm divorced or I'm a widow or I, I'm not happy in my marriage or something like that, God is, is telling us this is of the utmost importance. And it's in a list that includes not loving money, preaching to people, showing hospitality. It's not a list of unimportant things. This is very important. And I think the, for those that are struggling, I think this is this is one of those things where, you know, sometimes we need some time to think and process where we're at. And so that might be, like we've already said, going to a counselor, a trusted advisor, a pastor, someone to speak about this. So I think that's really important. And I think I think we can close with that, right, guys? Are it's you okay with that? So um, thank you for uh, watching Church Unscripted this week. Um, hit the notification bell below to know when the episodes go online. But also, um, if you're on a podcasting platform, leave us a review. Leave us five stars. I think it's five stars. I don't know. I'm looking at David. I have no idea. But... Uh, I I think it'd be awesome if um, you're able to share this with friends. Um, If you have comments or questions, maybe that we can use next week even, um, put those below. And we're excited that you're here with us this season. This is episode two, season two, Church Unscripted.